what are the three things you value most in life? <laughs> oh my goodness. Tessa, we're going straight into it, aren't we? Yes. Um, okay. Yes. The natural world, the splendor of the natural world, probably like goofs and laughs. And then the third one is, oh boy, let's say like learning or or like changing. I feel very pretentious saying this, but like the process of like metamorphosis, everything changing, hopefully for the better, but 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 just like changing. You know what I mean? I think that a lot of the problems that we have are due to people holding on to the past too tightly and and not being willing to like let things change as they change. I read this book uh, maybe a year ago about a concept called like growth mindset versus fixed mindset. Have you have you heard of that kind I of idea? I have different adaptations, not, not specifically that wording, but I have heard of the concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reading that really kind of struck me to my core. Just, just the idea that like either you, you can view yourself as like capable of change and capable of improvement, or you can view yourself as like someone who is inherently fixed and like everything that I have now is all I'm going to have, which is just like a profoundly damaging way of thinking about yourself and the world. Because like, if, if you think that you are incapable of change, then it means that if you fail now, that the stakes of that failure are, are like, well, if I can't do this now, I will never be able to do this. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you, if you view everything as like unfixed and, and easy or not necessarily easy to change, but just like possible to change, that like failing is just an opportunity for growth and like learning new things, right? I mean, for me, l- like embracing failure is something that I, I would like, I try to do myself and I, I think I could get better at it, but it's one of the things that I definitely aspire to is like jumping into the pool before I know what's in there. Risk taking. I think those are my three things is like change or, or like learning and laughter and the, the awe and majesty of the physical world. Tell me a memory which shaped you. Oh boy. Okay. A memory that shaped me. Here's the first thing that comes to mind. And I, I guess I will have to figure out how it shaped me as, as I went. Um, when I was a freshman in high school, when I was first entering high school, do you, in, in Ireland, do you have like high school? Is that, is that how you call it? What do you call the schools? Uh, so we have like kindergarten or like preschool. Uh-huh. Uh, then uh-huh. we have primary school, secondary school, college or university, and Got it. whatever. So from about the age of about 12 to 18 is secondary school. Okay, so, so yeah, this is the equivalent of secondary school. Uh, when, I, when I was first going into it, the, uh, my school had, had this thing where uh, the, the incoming students would g- separate into smaller groups and go on little like camping trips together so that so that you would be entering the school with some people that you knew and so i i went on this kayaking and camping trip and everybody was supposed to bring tents but i somehow we ended up with not enough tents and i brought 
I think what, what was like a one person tent, which is essentially like a coffin made out of nylon. Do you know what I mean? It's like really for, really for one person, but we didn't have enough tents. And so I ended up sleeping in a tent with this, with this other kid named Alex. And at some point, I don't know what it, what, whether it was the nerves from like this big new experience or it was something that I ate, but I woke up in the middle of the night and I knew that I was going to throw up. And I'm in this, t- this tiny, tiny space with another person. And I'm just like blindly grasping for zippers or like whatever I can do to get out of this place. And I, and I did not make it. Oh, no. uh, I did not make it in time. And I threw up in the tent, but Alex did not wake up. So then I was like sort of left with the, the decision to make, which is like, do you wake up this kid in the middle of the night and tell him that he's covered in your puke? Or do you let him rest hoping that everything will be better in the light of the morning? Because it's not like we could have done anything in the middle of the night, right? There was no showers there. We were, we were like in the middle of the woods. And so I decided to let him sleep. And boy, was it real crazy the next day. It was like truly, truly terrible. It's everything smelled worse. Everything was, I think I made the wrong decision. I don't know what was the right, there was no right decision, Tessa. There was nothing good that, that had come out of that. It was, and then I had to like pack up this, sleep, this sleeping bag and tent that just smelled terrible and then start my freshman year of high school. Somehow I escaped being like, like getting like a nickname of like puke kid or something like that. So somehow I managed to sidestep that. So maybe in that respect, this memory didn't change me that much. Although I, I do think that like, I always have kind of felt like, like an outsider or, or like, like I didn't quite fit in. I will and... use this moment to mention that your puke did fit into the tent which is good. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. Uh, it, it, it fit in like a, just a foul smelling puzzle piece, like a puzzle that smelled like a nightmare. So that was how I began my, my secondary school was by throwing up on Alex. And actually a few days later, Alex tripped and broke his leg and then everyone called him crutchy the rest of high school so somehow i escaped getting a terrible nickname but alex got called crutchy for four years which doesn't seem fair to me but that's i guess what happens i don't that's so unfair um (laughs) neither of you should have gotten nicknames no 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 one should have i mean that that story no one ends up a winner in that story unfortunately (laughs) uh so it it probably shaped you in in kind of a different underlying way which manifests itself in comedy probably yeah i guess that's right i mean i i think like most people that are involved in comedy are are somehow like using it to to cover up for some sort of pain right is that is that do you think that's generally true i think that's generally true or not necessarily pain but like you need something to be a performer so Mm -hmm. there is that very Mm -hmm. famous like bo burnham song which is like it's just about a kid who is never told that you don't need to get attention all the time. Why do you think I want a podcast? So I'm just inextricably drawn to creating things. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that has something to do with the fact that, you know, being trans, you kind of package a lot of things away. 
and you you don't feel right and you don't feel safe so you're like you know i'll i'll perform because if people are paying attention to this thing they don't have to pay attention to that thing but at the same time i think everyone has something and it, it, comedy is one of the greatest or performing even are, are one of the greatest ways to cope with it because you know if you're looking at what's happening in this hand this hand can just kind of disappear it's being able to like control the narrative a little bit definitely yeah yeah i, I like because if you can tell your own story no one's going to tell any stories about you if you're afraid of getting like relentlessly mocked or something. Well, if you have control over not only the characters in your story, but their motives and, you know, how people react to your story, you're golden. And when you're telling a joke or if you're telling a story, you get to position yourself. You, no one else gets to tell you where you are in your own story. And there's something very empowering about that, I think. What's your favorite color? I'm going to say blue is my favorite color. I think that blue is probably the color that I, I end up wearing the most. I don't know what that means. I have, I have only recently started taking like art classes in like the last year or so. I decided I wanted to take some art classes. So I started taking like drawing and painting classes. And one of the things that I found the most interesting was that color really only means something within a context, right? Like you can you can look at a blue next to like a, a sea of white and it looks like blue, right? But if you look at a blue next to a green, the blue can look like a totally different thing. Like if you if you have a lot of orange, just by like desaturating the orange and, and making it go into like more like gray the gray can actually look like blue even though there's no blue in it just because of the contrast and the context with the surrounding colors i find fascinating to just think about how something that seems as objective as the color red is not actually objective at all it is based on not only the things that are around it but also like your eyes like different people see different colors differently which i like so, so i have two responses to that which is first since i started uh, blockers so i have to block my testosterone since i started blockers uh -huh. i see colors differently what yes i see i gotta hear all about that yeah so like my every color is more vibrant Every color is like, wow, I've never seen, I'd never seen red before. I thought I saw red before, but what I actually saw was kind of gray, red. Oh my God, and, Tessa, that is incredible. Yeah, it's so good. Like imagine walking outside for the first time and seeing like an actual green, not what you think green is, but an actual green, like a leaf. And instead of a leaf being green, it's actually green and brown and orange and, and deep and textured and... It, it feels like, do you know the way if you give a wall one coat of paint? Imagine if you came in then and gave it six coats of paint and it's deep and it's rich and it's real. That's I, I don't know why, but that is making me tear up. I, do, I truly don't know why, but I'm having like a kind of emotional reaction to you saying that you are seeing colors more vividly. Now, it's like, I don't know what's happening in me, but it's making me feel something crazy. I've, it truly is making me feel very crazy right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> or I'm no, bad, no, no, no. You don't have to be sorry. I feel, I, um, that's really wild. Yeah, it's, it's like, it, it felt like, I was very scared at the time because I was like, holy shit. It was like everything was gray and, and dark and, and, and dusty. And then all of a sudden, you can't see it because of this camera because it sucks but <laughs> this is the greenest green i've ever seen in my entire life this is uh -huh. the, 
I got this, like, um, I would call it like a, a turquoisey green um, thing. You can't, it looks blue, but it's actually yeah. like a turquoisey green. And I've seen this color a thousand times, but I've never seen this color since I started. Like, I mean, I've never, yeah. it's, do you think, it feels real. Do you think that is like a, like a, literally a chemical reaction to having less testosterone or, or is, is it possible that it is like you are becoming more actualized as yourself and it's part of that also? I think it's, so I've heard similar things from people who start on testosterone. So I think Uh it's more leaning toward the second thing of like, you are actually not, you're about 75% a person right yeah. and then the 25 percent kicks in when your body kind of if you're always in fight or flight mode you always you're always just panicking you're always getting so your mind doesn't oh, who gives a fuck about an orange you're in, you're in a mood for fighting you know <laughs> but you start to calm down and that calming down has a lot of like effects all of a sudden like all at once you, you get you get these effects because suddenly you don't feel like anxiety or about your body, you feel anxiety about everything else and you feel your emotions about everything else. But you, you suddenly just feel yeah. like, holy shit, I am, well, who am I? Like, I know I'm yeah. definitely not that, but who am I? Uh, and then all of a sudden you feel like, oh shit. So I've just basically not been alive <laughs> uh, for 21 years of my life. That That's crazy. Well, fuck, fuck, fuck. Uh, <laughs> uh, the... The thing that keeps blowing my mind is it just keeps going. Like I finally reach a point where I'm like, oh, I know who I am. And I was like, <laughs> ah, gotcha. Uh, you reach a point where it's kind of psychological saliency. And then all of a sudden it just disappears. Uh, and you're back to square one again, where it's like actually everything you knew, because you, you know how you're going to react to things. You have an estimation of who you are and how you react. But when suddenly like seeing a hedgehog makes you cry that makes you <laughs> stop and reevaluate that uh, and see like seeing color for the first time like it's not even you see those videos on youtube of, like logan paul and people who like put on the colorblind glasses <laughs> and they're like holy shit this is amazing because it wasn't like i hadn't seen red before it's not that it's like someone poured in the rest of the red dye or like it just became deeper and richer so an apple that before like people would always talk about the the richness of a red apple i was like what the fuck it's an apple but now i'm like no 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 this is a rich apple and i can you can taste the red it's palatable the second thing which i think will blow your mind is the fact that the color brown does not exist there is no wavelength for the color brown it doesn't exist nothing is brown it's just either orange or red toned down there is no such thing. I don't have brown hair. I have orange hair that's just yeah, dark, dark yeah. brown. So nothing you have in your house that's brown is actually brown. It's just your mind is going, I don't understand this. So <laughs> <laughs> man, I'm I'm really I feel very envious of you being able to experience it experience that in in sort of the same way that like when i first learned about synesthesia i i felt envious of like people being able to experience something that i will just never i will never know what that is although i guess to to some extent 
you know, other people's experiences are always unknowable to us. Everyone, everyone else in the world is experiencing different things that I will never know what that, that feels like to some extent. But this specifically, I'm curious and it kind of blows my mind and it's really fascinating to me. Was the payoff worth it though? <laughs> I mean, what I, uh, I'll get back to you. I'll just say. Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, let me know. Yeah, I'll get back to you on whether the 21 years of shit was worth, <laughs> uh, worth that. It's like, would you wait six hours for a roller coaster if it was a really good roller coaster? It's hard to say. Yeah. Are, um, are there fun things to look at in the line? I don't know. If there's uh, nothing it, fun to look at in the line, maybe not. The 21 years, it was pretty, I mean, pretty, pretty decent. I mean, it sucked for a lot of it, but it was pretty decent waiting. I mean, we got to do some fun stuff, yeah. so that, that's fine. Yeah. The, the roller coaster was a lot better, though. Tell me in as much detail as you can about something you knew of which once existed and now does not. This is, a, this is going to be a great opportunity for me to like try to describe something and possibly get a lot of things wrong. But, I'm, but I, will, I will do my best. The first thing that I, that I think about is I, I read a book last year called hiding the elephant i believe it's what it, what it's called either vanishing the elephant or hiding the elephant it's by a guy named jim steinmeier and it's about magic and and the growth of magic in like the late 1800s and early 1900s like stage illusions and one of the chapters that i found so interesting was d- describing the like landscape of the mid 1800s about ghosts, about people's belief in ghosts. And I don't know if you've ever heard about the the spiritualism movement of the 1800s. Do you know anything about that? I do not. Okay, so I'm gonna do my best to recall what I read because it was very interesting, but I will preface it by saying all of it may be wrong. Okay, so the spiritualism movement was this movement in the mid 1800s all about ghosts and seances and stuff arthur conan doyle was a spiritualist are you talking like order of the golden dragon and and stuff or go for golden lotus or stuff like that i don't know what that is but maybe they, they did like tarot cards and stuff dawn order of the order of the golden dawn my apologies the hermetic huh. order of the golden dawn uh... i only know this from reading a biography of Arthur Conan Doyle. I don't know much about it other than that. The, the part that the, really interested me was there were these, these sisters named the Fox Sisters who lived in upstate New York in the United States. And they, they moved into this house and the, and the, the girls didn't want to move there. And they were, they were pissed off at their mom. And one night they started like throwing an apple against a wall and they tied a string to the apple and threw the apple. And then when their mom came into the room, they would pull the apple with under with the string so that they would hide it. And then their mom, their mom was like, what, what was that knocking? And they would say, I don't know. They were just like terrorizing their mom. And then they found out that they could do this weird thing with the, with the knuckles in their, in their toes, where if they, they like cracked them a certain way or like thumped them on the ground, they could make this like a bizarre thumping noise. And they were doing it to terrorize their mom and like freak her out. And they said that it was a ghost. And very quickly, this spread and people really thought there were ghosts. And it created a religion, essentially, of people doing seances and trying to communicate with ghosts and stuff. When in fact, it was just these like three 
kind of bratty girls who were very obviously lying. And I don't think that we today can experience ghosts in the same way, right? Like, like there's not, I guess we have, we have like deep fakes. So there, there's like stuff that can be faked today. And, and there's like, there's news that you can't believe all the time. But there is something to me that's so interesting about the country getting wrapped up in ghost fever and truly believing in ghosts that is so wild and so far from my experience of the world. I can't imagine me today being like, man, those, those three girls really saw some ghosts. That's, that's wild. And I got to pay some money to see them in a theater where I can hear this ghostly rapping. I would wholeheartedly agree. I'm, I'm trying to think, is there anything, anything at all that we can, we could have something? No, because it requires, first of all, a lot of the reason why we're very skeptic about ghosts is like this 50s, 60s, 70s kind of scientific movement, popular science, like Bill and I, these getting on where it's like, be skeptical. And then in the 2000s, you have like, the, the atheists and, and the like, you know, the, these guys on the internet who are like, you know, rationality above all else. Uh, and even then, you know, we had the exponential growth of science. We had spa- like flight, space, you know, all of these other things. So if you remove all of that and you're just some dude from, I don't know, like Michigan <laughs> in, in 1896 and you're like, you've never left your town and, you know, the wind on a certain day, you don't know shit about wind, right? You don't know shit, but the wind comes through on a certain day and the entire thing rattles. And you don't know anything about it. It's just like a thing that the, you know, the shed does. And then someone walks yeah. into town and is like, that's a ghost, buddy. You're like, hmm, is it? Is Maybe it, a ghost? it is a yeah. ghost. Maybe that is a ghost. Well, and then the guy asks you, where'd you get, like, who on this land? Oh, well, it, it was actually Native American. There you go. You've you've got ghosts. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's Native American ghosts. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 I think also everybody having a high definition camera in their pocket all the time has has also made it so that we can't believe in supernatural things. Like I remember, I was born in 1984, and I I think like a big part of my childhood was going to the supermarket and seeing the sort of trashy newspapers or, or like National Enquirer. So not really newspapers, but like tabloids talking about finding Bigfoot or finding aliens or, or finding the Loch Ness Monster, right? And you, I think you see a lot less of that now. I think that there's not, when you go to the grocery store, you don't, I don't think those tabloids are talking about Bigfoot so much because, because if there were a Bigfoot, somebody would have found him and recorded him with an iPhone, right? I totally agree. I think we're more obsessed now with like, the, of course, there is the political quest for non-truth, but we'll, we'll leave that aside. Like in, in tabloids, it is just like, what's Megan Fox doing today? Or like, you know, who is this star dating? Because you want to know everything about these parasocial relationships uh, that you have. Whereas now we want paranormal relationships because they're at least a little bit more interesting <laughs> I had a I had a dude in my uh, government of politics co- course who said to me, um, <clears throat> we were having this discussion about belief in God. And he was like, I don't really care if God exists or not. I choose to believe in God because it's a lot more interesting. Uh, and I was like, do you not think if you can't find evidence for something, you shouldn't? It's like, well, it doesn't really matter, does it? 
I, I can live a comfortable and happy life or I can not. And I only get one life. So why not? God probably doesn't exist, but I'm still going to pray to him because on a Sunday evening, if it's raining and I feel like shit, I can pray to God and it'll make <laughs> me feel better. And I'm like, hmm, that's really interesting. Yeah, I basically agree with that. As long as you're not using the Bible as so many people do to, to like limit other people's freedom, right? If, if you are not using these like very old archaic rules to decide how other people should live, then I, like, I see no problem with somebody, somebody believing or not, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't see any problem with it. And I think what struck me about it was the fact that, oh, no, I have no, absolutely no reason to believe in God. There's like, it probably doesn't exist, but it's, it's comfortable. I want to believe it because it's comfortable. And I'm like, I was raised on this diet of people saying, well, a harsh truth is better than a half lie. And then I just came <laughs> across this unabashed person who's like, no, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with their, like going to mass on a Sunday and, and going for a couple of pints afterwards and being quintessentially Catholic Irish, which is more of a, a construct than anything, but still I think relates to that concept of, well, imagine if you were in the 1890s from Michigan wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be far more interesting if there was ghosts living in your shed instead of just the wind? You know, do you want to believe in fairies or do you want to believe in, you know, wind patterns? I don't know. Uh, I, I tend to, like, we have so much mythos and stuff around it. I, I think sometimes a happy lie can be a lot more interesting at, at the very least. And I struggle with the idea of sometimes dealing with if I should concede to some of these happy lies because the reality of the situation can be also ultimately depressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, ultimately we, we have uh, of not too much time being alive in the world. And I kind of think that anything that you can do, that's going to make your life more full of joy, as long as it's not limiting someone else's joy, I kind of think you should go for it. What, if anything is perfect. <laughs> oh no um i'm gonna say a delicious pizza pie i think everybody's always talking about how new york pizza is better or chicago pizza is better this is a big thing that people in america talk about i think that tomato sauce and bread and cheese together are just a pretty delicious combination of ingredients and I don't think that there is a bad pizza that you can have. I think that I think that all pizzas are pretty good, except if you if I eat too much of them, my stomach hurts. And now I'm beginning to think that maybe nothing is perfect. Tessa, I think nothing is perfect. Unfortunately, <laughs> I thought maybe it was pizza, but now that I'm thinking about it, I think maybe nothing is. No, nothing is perfect because pizza was as close as I could come. <laughs> In the like I like how the three things you one of the three things you value most is like the beauty and awe of nature, and it's like if something is is perfect, ah, it's pizza. It is pizza. Yeah, <laughs> you deal with that slightly in one of your books, actually. Uh, I, I am relatively neutral about New York, which is hilarious. In which you just kind of go through and say Chicago, New York, all of these things, and it's just like 
can you tell the difference? Can you link these to this? And I was like, no, you can't because pizza's pizza. <laughs> you want to hear an interesting thing about I feel relatively neutral about New York? Sure, yeah. We, um, <clears throat> so the, the cover of that book, it's a play on the like, I heart New York, but it was I like neutral face New York. And about a year after we published that, our publisher got a cease and desist letter from this state of New York saying that they were going to press charges unless they, they took all those books off the shelves. And apparently, New York is very litigious about their trademark for I Heart New York, even though, to me, it seems like pretty clearly fair use, like it's, it's parody, we're, we're, we're paradizing that symbol for comedy, but the publisher was afraid of getting sued. And so I think that they, they, they like pulled all those books off the shelves and they put them through a paper like shredder. Fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Holy and shit. in fact, so I was researching that a little bit more. And the guy who, <clears throat> excuse me, the guy who made the original I Heart New York logo is, his name is Milton Glazer. He designed that. And then after 9-11, he designed another version of it, which, which said, I Heart New York now more than ever. And he made that, I believe, for the Red Cross or some sort of charitable organization that was raising money for the like, survivors and families of, of 9-11 victims. And the city of New York tried to sue Milton Glaser for infringing on the trademark of the design that he created in the first place and was adapting for charity after 9-11. That is Isn't heartless. That insane? That's insane. Real, real bad. Yeah. And then there was like public outcry and then they and then they retracted their season desist. I'm glad that there was public outcry over that. <laughs> yeah. Fuck yourself, City of New York. Yeah. He uh, he inv- he made the design himself and then they were accusing him of infringing on his own design. Not a great look. Who is your favorite character from fiction of any kind and why? Ooh, this is a this is a good opportunity for for me to uh, reveal myself as as only semi-literate. I'm going to say Gonzo from The Muppets. There's something about Gonzo that I have always so optimistic and so strange and, and yet like sort of lonely and sad. He just is like always, like he's always, he's always doing these crazy stunts. Like he's going to, he's going to like, jump over uh like a flaming tractor or something with his with his like chickens on jet skis or something right he is misunderstood and he doesn't know what he is and yet he he is like so positive and silly and strange i think what it is is that he's a combination of like literally not knowing what he is but also being sort of secure in who he is does that make sense at all that makes perfect sense. Yeah, there's something there's something I, I sort of relate to about about him not knowing where he's from, not really like having a past, but sort of like creating a family around himself with his with his friends, which I don't think totally applies to me. Like I, I had a great family. I, I still have a great family. I love my both my parents and I love my sister. But I, I think that I have always felt a little bit alienated from the world. I always felt like I, I wasn't totally sure how I fit in. And I, I think Gonzo 
really like lives that and and shows how you can sort of create your world around yourself in a way that I think is like very funny but also like very touching. Uh, I've often said that my life oscillates between tragedy and hilarity. It's just like, <laughs> oh my God, this is super sad. And oh my God, this is super funny. Um, yeah, but yeah. I, I had something that uh, said to me, which resonated because I, I often f- felt very similar. Like, you know, wh- what is my role in, in this whole thing? First of all, one person said to me, well, it implies that you have a role, which is endlessly unproductive. But a second, a, person, a second person said to me, well, even the edge pieces in a jigsaw define where everyone else is. So maybe you're just the edge piece. Oh, wow. That's good. Yeah. It fucking hit me like a ton of bricks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of the, the same as like in a visual art piece, you need like neutral colors in order to also let like vibrant colors stand out, right? If everything is all if everything is all vibrant colors, you have an eyesore of a piece. You need contrast in order to, for anything to mean anything. What fascinates you? When I was a little kid, I was really into magicians and magic. I did magic shows for for little younger kids' birthday parties. Like when I was ten, I would do magic shows for like five and six and seven year olds birthday parties. And I did that from when I was 10 until when I was about 18. And I think the reason that I'm thinking about that is because that is, I think the reason that I read this book, the hiding the elephant book, because only recently in my, in my adulthood have I started to realize that the things that I liked as a kid, I kind of still like as an adult. Uh, And I think a lot, a lot of my adulthood has just been, accepting the fact that I, I sort of still am who I was when I was a kid. But the idea of magic has always s- sort of fascinated me because on the one hand, it is sort of creepy. There's something very creepy about magicians. It's all about, it's, it's, like, it's like these sad, mostly men, mostly white men, learning all these secrets, spending a lot of time by themselves learning secrets so they can impress strangers, right? It's like the the subtext behind every magic trick is like, uh, okay, here, pick a card. But the subtext is like, I spent a lot of time by myself trying to learn how to do this instead of making friends because I was afraid that you wouldn't like me well enough on my own. So I've constructed a physical barrier between you and me out of these deck, out of this deck of cards, hoping that if you're impressed with this card trick, some of that will glance off the cards and be reflected onto me uh, because me myself, I'm not good enough. And so I have to, I have to lie to you and, and show you uh, like, and tell you all these lies and trick you with secrets, hoping that maybe you will like me as a result, which is a very sad thing. <laughs> oh, Profoundly <shit>. sad. <laughs> but, but at the same time, so there's that, which is like real shitty. But at the same time, magic is also about the belief that with practice and innovation and imagination the physical laws of the universe do not have to apply to us all of the limitations that we thought existed everything that we assumed 
held us back about the world doesn't have to hold us back if we can practice and if we can if we can learn if we can read books and and like learn things which is is i think sort of profound and and i think that the fact that magic can capture both of these things simultaneously this like disgusting creepiness this like hidden sad man like masturbating in a corner like <laughs> disgusting man but also this elevation of humans into the realm of gods is is so cool i mean i i have a very conflicted relationship with this with this hobby because like when i was when i was a kid and i was doing these i would be doing these parties and then in the back of the room there would always be an older brother or an older sister that was my age that was looking at me doing these things and just like so disgusted by me, right? Because I'm wearing like crazy pants and I'm like pulling streamers out of my mouth. Do you know what I mean? And, it, and it's like, like, dude, like go outside. Stop. Why are you doing this, man? Like you... It was, it was so embarrassing. Actually, oh man, here's this story. Here's a sad story about magic. So I went to a college called Oberlin, which is in Ohio, which is sort of in the middle of nowhere, uh, in a very small town in the middle of Ohio, in the middle of, of America. And the town itself is like a block by a block. But I thought that instead of getting a a job like in the school cafeteria to make money that I would bring along my magic tricks and try to do magic shows for this, for the, the sons and daughters of the professors in the town or, or towns nearby. Right. So I, I thought that I would do magic shows. So I had this poster of me wearing my magic outfit and like, with my phone number and my name and it was just like very bright colors very embarrassing and i went to this sort of community bulletin board at the college and i started to hang it up and then a girl that i had just met that was in my like one of my classes started to walk up and i saw her and i panicked and i pulled it down and crushed it up and held it behind my back and shoved it into my pocket. And then I never put up any more posters ever again. And, I, and the magic stuff sat in my closet and then I took it home. Holy shit. Oh. Isn't that sad? It is. It, it implies a kind of a deep and, and almost like paraly- paralytic shame about this <laughs> thing. About this thing yes. that you loved. Uh, yes. And- Truly, I, I had I had a very similar experience uh, when I was a kid about like video games. So I didn't oh, have yeah. very many friends, and I, I but I used to like because before 2015, 2014, playing video games was like a thing that weird, strange people who sit in rooms alone do. <laughs> uh, but I did it all the time because you know I didn't have you know I didn't have shit for friends. I was like, yeah, this is awesome. And like <laughs> I would tell these uh, tell people when I met friends like, "Oh, I ha- I had these friends." And they were like, "Oh, I I thought you didn't have friends." Yeah, but they were online friends. And they're like mm. they look at you with this kind of like online friends, really? Yeah. 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 Are you sad? Are you deranged? Are you perhaps, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, but these are like these were relationships that really mattered and 
these are things that really mattered. And I, I totally get what you're saying. Like, I mean, one of the major things is like, magicians are lying to you. They're, yeah, they're like they're literally liars. lying. <laughs> yeah, literally That's lying. But at the same time, it's so cool. Like I watched like Dynamo specials and, and you know, Penn and Teller and like, yeah, they're awesome. But I'm not sure now that you've put the idea in my head of like, I have to spend all this time alone <laughs> to do it. Yeah. You're, you're like standing in front of a mirror for hours at a time, just like practicing the way that your pinky holds a deck of cards. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like just the finest, most minute little details instead of trying to talk to people. <laughs> but you still like it, don't you? I do. I feel very conflicted, but I still do really like it. Yeah, so I, I would say jettison the shame because magic's cool as hell. <laughs> I don't know. I think people, yeah. do, people do weird enough shit that they put their phone up and they dance in front of, like, you know, dance to, I don't know, pop music or something on TikTok. <laughs> so if people yeah. can do that, you can, you can pull a card out of your asshole. Like, you know? You're right. You're right. I mean, I think... Sometimes I think that a little bit of shame, like complicating, complicating things, complicating your feelings towards something can be fun. I'm trying to think if I actually mean that or if I believe that or not. Like a paralyzing amount of shame is obviously very bad. And a, a shame that is like actually making you feel bad about yourself is not good. But I do think that like sometimes there is there's something fun about me having like a secret, this like secret shameful crush on magic that I, that I don't, that I feel conflicted about. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense at all? Yeah, it does. It definitely does make sense. Like, like lemon water tastes kind of good, but lemon water is also the purview <laughs> of like white old ladies at dinner parties. And you're like, do I, do I, do I like lemon water or do I yeah. like the fact that no one else likes it? Like, it's like Sometimes a guilty pleasure can be fun. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. I think you're onto something. What other job would you like to do if you weren't doing this? Yeah, it truly is a tricky question to answer for me because I am a very strange I'm a very strange guy, Tessa. <laughs> I, I somehow have been lucky enough that I, I wrote a couple books that, that have like been able to support me, right? And I get enough like acting jobs that those are able to support me. And I'm not living a fancy life by any means, but I do have enough like income that I am able to mess around a lot and indulge in my curiosities, which I am very happy with. I have sort of accepted that I'm never going to be rich and famous, but I am able to like go and take cheap like painting classes and learn how to paint. Or, or like take take like coding classes and try to figure out how to like program an Arduino and make like some robotic stuff and <clears throat> sort of indulge in these weird passions of mine. So I don't know. I'm kind of I don't really have a job, but I am 
currently, like I, I have a couple children's books that are going to come out next year. I'm currently illustrating another children's book that's going to come out the year after that. I'm also like making a children's show on Instagram for, for little kids that I made out of cardboard and paint in my garage. And I'm, I'm sort of in the process of talking to like some producers about if it's possible to make that into a full scale production. So I kind of am a weird guy that, that gets to indulge all of my passions and I don't, and I realize that's like an incredibly privileged place to, to operate from. All of it happened because I had like a, a family that was able to support me and let me like flail around a little bit wet until I like wrote these books. But that's sort of where I am. Does that make sense at all? There is no other job because you're kind of doing it all. I, there's no other job because I don't have a job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is your most prized physical possession? Um, I tend to not put a ton of stock on physical possessions. I am pretty good about letting things go if if they're just sitting around. I'm I'm, I'm like my parents say that I'm ruthless if I if I'm like I was cl- I went up to their their house and I was cleaning out my childhood bedroom and they initially said like just choose the things that you want to keep and choose the things that you want to throw away and I threw away almost everything. And then they went back through it and they were like, you can't throw this away. What are you kidding me? So for me, like experiences count more than things. But I'm looking around this room here trying to see if I have something that, well, back there is a poster from a circus that I went to when I was like a little, little kid. There was a circus called the Pickle Family Circus in San Francisco where I grew up. And in addition to magic, I was also really into circuses. There's something about a group of people coming together and putting on a show and doing things together that shouldn't be possible that always fascinated me. And I was never into the animals. I always felt very conflicted about the animals. I was a vegetarian since I was 10 years old. I didn't like the animals. But the family of it, I really liked. There's this poster from when I was a little kid and I went to go see the circus. And my parents have this photo of me when I was a little kid with this clown in the background and her name is Joan Mankin. And later, after I graduated from college, I auditioned for a play, Midsummer Night's Dream or a California Shakespeare Theater in, in California. And Joan Mankin, this clown, was in the play with me. And she was an older woman by then, but I got to be in this play with this clown that, that I had this photo of me with her as a little kid. She since died. Getting to interact professionally and artistically with this woman that meant so much to me as a little child is like one of the most rewarding things that I've gotten to do. She would bring juggling clubs to rehearsal. And when we weren't rehearsing with Shakespeare, we would like pass clubs between us. We would juggle clubs together or we would go swimming together at this, at this lake that was near the theater. Yeah, so anyway, so my, my, my poster from the Pickle Family Circus is, is maybe one of my most prized possessions, I think. If you could name a hot sauce, what would you call it and why? <laughs> I think that the market is already flooded with, like, extreme hot sauce names. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's, like, 
the atomic bomb. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or like, like mouthfucker or something like, 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 like very aggressive names like that. I feel like already exist in hot sauce. So I think that in order to stand out among the competition, you need to go the other way. And I think it's time for like ironic hot sauce names like Kitten Whispers. My hot sauce is called A Smile from Grandma. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's maybe what it would be. It would be A Smile from Grandma. <laughs> a gentle summer's breeze, yeah. A gent- just, a, just a bittersweet autumn memory. That's what I call my hot sauce. <laughs> oh, that's awesome.